Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you called Abraham and told him to go from that which he was comfortable with and into a new place. And through that calling, eventually you provided us with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we, when we receive the call to follow Christ, stand up and go as well. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Some time ago, uh, a group of libertarians got together and thought, you know what would be a really good idea? is if we all move to one small state, so then we can like, help influence the elections there and maybe show people that libertarian policies actually work. But as it turns out, libertarians don't like to be told what to do, and so this never actually really worked out. <laughs> but it was an interesting idea nonetheless. And it's got me to thinking of, if you were called or asked to start a new town, even just a new town, not even a, a, a whole state, how would you go about it? Chances are you talk to your friend Bill, who's a good baker, and Bob, who's a good carpenter, and Jimmy, who has expertise in law, and maybe recruit a few people who are policemen, and you'd all invite them to this one area and start this little town, and it would be a great smashing success, maybe, I don't know. Uh, depends on how organized you are. If it was me, it would probably be chaotic, but... <clears throat> you would recruit people to help you do this. And you would think if, if God is going to start something, he would recruit people to do this, not just one guy. But that's how God goes about starting his people, starting his nation. He picks one guy and he says to him, go from your country and from your kindred of your father's house to the land I will show you. If we were to say, well, I'm going to start a country, it wouldn't be... You know, I'm going to send just one person out into this place with his wife and say, well, good luck. And of course, we know that God intercedes for him. And it's not just saying good luck, but he is picking just one person to leave behind everything that he knows and go several hundred miles away and start a new, a new thing. And God goes on to tell Abram what he's going to do in this place, what he's going to do for Abram. He says to him, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who dishonor you, and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let's think about those seven things for a few minutes here. The first thing he says to Abram is, I will make you a great nation. Now, as we reach the end of Abram's life, the only thing that's happened is he's had one son with somebody else and a son that is his wife's son. And so maybe he's wondering, even now, like he's quite old now, maybe he's wondering, well, how is that even possible? I have no children. And it does, in fact, take a long, long time. And arguably, we could argue that it's not until around the birth of Moses that Israel is even conceivably a great nation. Because by then it talks about in, in Exodus that 
you know, there were so many Israelites being born that it kind of freaked Pharaoh out. Like, well, what if they rebel against me? So maybe we could argue by then Israel's a great nation, but certainly not within Abram's lifetime. And this reminds us that sometimes God calls us to do things, and it takes time. And it's, it's kind of funny that we had parking issues this morning. Thank you for your patience for those of you who are affected by said parking issues. Um, but I remember when I got here, the parking lot wouldn't even be full. And, you know, of course, I was hoping the church would just go boom and blow, not blow up, grow, grow, and grow <laughs> right away. But these things take time, right? It takes God's timing for his work to be done. It's, it's rarely ever in our timing. It's rarely ever, you know, we want to press the button on the microwave and it happens. But much like Abraham, it takes time for these things to happen. It takes two or three hundred years for Israel to be even possibly considered a great nation. The second part is God says that he will bless Abram. And I think this certainly happens in his lifetime, and even we can say it happens in this passage. If we remember last week, for those of you who were here, we ended on a really bleak note. The end of the, end of the flood narrative is... is really quite bleak as God makes a covenant with humanity, but the the covenant only is God acting towards man. There's no relationship in that covenant. And so it it almost ends as a question of, well, is God just going to kind of let humanity do their own thing for a while and, and end there? But no, just a few chapters later, we have God calling Abram and then, in fact, appearing to him. In this passage itself, there's a theophany where God appears to Abram and talks to him. And there's an actual face-to-face interaction of some sort. And so there's that hope and there is, in fact, that blessing. Because to experience God, to know God, is the greatest blessing of all. And next he says, I will make your name great. Now, we skipped over the Tower of Babel just for time's sake. But part of that, which is really interesting, and I I had never really noticed it before. It's always really troubling, right? They're building up. They want to get to heaven on their own works, and we all know that's a no-no. But there's another thing that happens in Genesis 11 during the Tower of Babel, and that is that they want to make their own name great. They want to be legendary. And God says, no. That's not how this works. And so there's a clear play off of this where God says, no, no, if somebody's name is going to be great, I will make it great. Now, this probably didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime. Perhaps a few people knew who he was. He's kind of like the guy around town that everybody knows, but then you go to Phoenix or you go you know, out of state and you're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? And they're just like, why in the world would we know so-and-so? <clears throat> but now at least in the West and Islamic countries, everybody knows Abram's name and knows who he is. There's no doubt that Abram's name has been made great. Next, he gives Abram an imperative. That is a a command. Some people say that this is an invitation, but I think it's actually a this will happen. You will be a blessing. Now, the fullness of this, I don't think, is fulfilled until Christ. It is ultimately, if we read Matthew's gospel, that we learn that Christ is the child of Abraham, the child of David, or the descendant of these two men. And this is that fulfillment of the blessing unto the world. 
And ultimately, Christ is that ultimate blessing. And there are blessings and there are curses. So for those that turn to Christ, we know the incredible blessing that we have in him. Christ has freed us. Christ has blessed us. Christ has made us the sons and daughters of God. But there's also a judgment in the cross. For Christ takes upon himself the judgment which we deserve. But likewise, if we turn our backs on Christ, we face that judgment. We face that curse. And finally, the last thing that God says that he will do through Abram is that all people, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is still happening, right? Because for now, we wait for the second coming of Christ. We wait for his return. When we hear that every tongue and every knee will bow, that all that in the, those throngs of saints crying out in glory before God, every language will be spoken. And so one day, this final blessing is we are looking forward to. We are looking forward to that day when we will join with all those families and sing praises to God. But you notice something here. In a lot of ways, it seems like, well, there's three ways that God is going to bless Abraham and two ways that God is going to bless the world and so on and so forth. And there's a commandment towards Abraham, or Abram, rather, at this point. But ultimately, in all of this, it's God working towards and through Abram. It's God that's doing this work. It's God that's building all saints. It's God's that, God that is working in your hearts to change them to his glory. You and I, Abram, are not the heroes of our stories. God alone is the hero. But then the rest of the, the chapter deals with Abraham, Abram and his actions. He's called, God says, to go and to leave behind his kindred. And he's moderately obedient at this. And I say moderately obedient because there's an interesting thing that happens, right? His, his nephew Lot comes along with him. And we can search and search and search for an explanation of why Lot comes along with him. And we can't find any sort of satisfactory answer except that Lot just goes. And it's mentioned twice, and so obviously when Moses sits down to write this, he wants us to know that Lot is there. That's probably not the best thing in the world. Lot probably should have stayed behind, but, but maybe Lot was underage, maybe, maybe some other things, or, or, or perhaps even Lot was the, the clear heir, and so Abraham's like, well, I better bring him along just to Lot. You know, I'm old at this, Kate, at this point. Maybe I'll kick it on my way down to this promised land, and then maybe my nephew can take this promise for me or something. So it seems like Abraham is obedient, but not quite as obedient as he should be. Because he doesn't leave that behind behind his nephew. And another interesting thing happens after that. There's that theophany. That's your $5 theological word for the week. There's that appearing of God at the Oak of Moray. And the Oak of Moray is an interesting thing, which we'll circle back to just briefly because I want to point out that as, Abraham, as we go along, we read that Abraham kind of travels around, and at another point, he builds a couple of, of, of altars, and at one point, he, he pitches his tent. And during that time, he, he has the opportunity to see all of the promised land. But then he goes south after that and into Egypt. 
So he leaves it, and it'll eventually come back. There's a delayed fulfillment here that we see it doesn't take, or it takes until Joshua 1 to really truly be filled. It takes centuries before the offspring of Abraham actually inherit the land. And as we get to Joshua 1, Joshua is standing, and his men are standing at the bank of, of the Jordan, and God says to them, be strong and courageous. And now what does all of this have to tie together? I know I'm kind of all over the place, and hopefully I'm not too all over the place. <clears throat> Something happens at that theophany, right? That place where God actually physically appears to Abraham. <clears throat> Abram is standing at a place called the Oak of Moray. And this is an interesting thing because it's not just the description of an oak. And Moray means teacher. But the description of an oak seems to imply that the oak has some sort of sacred or magical power. And so what, what I think and what we think is happening here is this is actually an oak tree that was used for like soothsaying by the Canaanites. In other words, it's a sacred, a sacred thing to another god. And Abraham sees it. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to build an um, altar right next to this. And that, that should be fine, right? Even though Yahweh, even though God has said to him, this land is yours. <clears throat> There's an old story about, well, it's, it's a true story, actually, about a missionary to the Germanic people. And he goes into this, the area, into the Germany area, and he finds out that there's an oak tree, much like this oak tree, to Thor. His reaction to this is, is very different than Abram's. Abram is just like, well, I'm going to build the altar, and you know, there's another altar over there. It's okay. Nobody's going to be bothered by that, right? <clears throat> Winfried of Boniface, who goes into Germany to, to be their missionary or missionary to them, to bring Christ to them, chops down the oak of Thor. Just walks up and chops it down, and eventually somebody gets really mad at him and, and kills him for this. But that sets a different precedence for us, and it opens our eyes to a different question. We're prone to just kind of ignore idols, whether they're our own personal idols or community idols. And so it begs a question. As we look out into our community and we want to bring them Christ, what are the idols that our community holds tightly? What are the things that we need to preach against and live against? But here's an even more important question. What are the idols that you struggle with? What are the idols in your heart that you need to go in and knock them down? Are you ready to do that so that you worship God alone? I think in the shadow of all of this and why I brought Joshua in is to answer either of those questions, especially to answer the questions about yourself. It takes a certain amount of strength and courage to do this. Because the world around you will tell you, no, no, don't worry, you be you. It's the classic one, right? Or, or some other version of that. Or will tell you, no, you need to share in our righteous indignation about, fill in the blank. You need to do these things. But Christ says, no, follow me. And following Christ in the shadow of so much dissonance and so much anger is hard. 
But we must remember that the war is already won. My friends, you are not soldiers in a righteous war, but you are already victors in Christ. When Christ was on the cross, remember his last words? They were, it is finished. And those words extend to his coming again. In that last moment, before he gave up his last breath, he won the war. He finished it. And so, we are to live as victors. And I think what this looks like is the fruit of the Spirit. To live in strength and courage isn't to, to go out and bodybuild and scream loudly and be manly men and womenly men, women that are fierce, but it's to live in the fruit of the Spirit, to have love, to have joy, to have peace, to have goodness and kindness and patience, to have faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there are no laws. To live in love is perhaps the greatest act of rebellion when the world around us says, be angry, be fearful. No, love God and love your neighbor. When the world says you should be scared and upset all the time, have joy because you know the end of the story, because you know that you are loved. Because you know that you have the peace of Christ which passes all understanding. Be patient. Take in stride what the world shows. Be patient, throws at you. Be patient knowing that God's word will not come back void. Be patient in knowing that God will complete the work which he has begun in you. Live in kindness. This isn't the same as niceness that just smiles and nods whenever anybody says something crazy. But it also isn't being mean to that person that says something crazy. But it's responding with gentleness and self-control and saying, my friend, I think that doesn't make much sense. Let's talk about that. Love goodness. Be faithful. God has started a work in you. He will complete it just as it takes him time to complete the nation of Israel, to build it up and to complete his work in him, he is building you up and he is drawing you nearer to him. Set your sights on the end and walk steady. Be gentle and have self-control. The world tells you that self-control is overrated. Do whatever it is that you want to do that makes you happy. No, have self-control and avoid those sins that are so often listed. My friends, this morning we see Abram called, and it takes an act of faith for him to walk out. But he can do it because he knows that what God has begun, he will end. And so he goes out in imperfect obedience. And we see eventually, far, far, far down the road, As Joshua enters into the promised land, the land that was promised to to Abram, that he's called to to be strong and courageous. And likewise, because Christ has started in you a good work, be strong and courageous 
because you know the end. Be strong and courageous and live out your life in the Spirit because he will finish the work which he has begun. Be strong and courageous in Christ because he is coming again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.